if you keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 13, as we continue our study of uh, this gospel. And um, I was on vacation uh, recently. I came back and I was looking at Mark 13 and I opened up the first commentary that I really have enjoyed. And the commentator said that Mark 13 is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to interpret. So Pastor Jim, Michael, Andrew, you're welcome. It is true that this text, almost every part of this text, there's a different take on it depending on who you read, but I think there's something more fundamental that makes this text difficult for us. This text is, is going to help, uh, Jesus is going to uh, make predictions about the future. He's going to make some predictions, as we just read in the text, about when the temple that he prophesies will be destroyed, and the disciples are concerned about that, and he's going to give them sort of the run-up to the destruction of the temple. That's about 40 years away from the time he makes that prediction. But it also appears that Jesus is also giving uh, a, a much broader sort of summary of end time events, going all the way to his second coming. And what Mark is presenting here is what he's been trying to say to us over and over again, is that Jesus is the Son, the Son, the co-regent ruler with God the Father. He's come to earth to begin to set up his rule and reign, to restore the world under his authority. And the second coming of Jesus is when he will come again to this earth and he will right every wrong, he will fix this broken world. And I think that's one of the problems with this text for us. I'll speak to those of you who are younger than me, which is many of you. Not all of you, but many of you. When I was growing up, I was a follower of Jesus Christ. I came to Christ at a very young age, and I knew that, 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 that Jesus was going to come back and fix the world. There were lots of songs in our worship services about that as I grew up. But frankly, I wasn't that excited about the second coming. Why? Because I had a football game the next day. I wanted to go to, I wanted to, go to college, right? I wanted to go to this, uh, you know, sometimes it's basic. My friend was having a party this weekend. I can't afford Jesus to come now. So it's like instead of saying, even so, Lord, quickly come, even so, let's postpone it. And I justified that by saying so that more people would have an opportunity to trust Jesus. But I think that's a problem for a lot of us, if we're honest. We're not looking forward to the second coming. We're, we, we, we're actually looking forward to what this world can bring us. And so the force of this text is lost on us. I think there's another reason that this text is difficult for us is that um, uh, uh, some of us look at the world, and if you haven't noticed, it's not going that well, okay? And we look at the world, we say this is a disaster, and, 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 and we, we get so overwhelmed with the, 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 the horrible events taking place all over the world, we lose sight of the fact Jesus is going to come and fix it. 
And so we're overwhelmed with anger and frustration at what we see around the world in our own country. I think for others of you in this room or online, you are... You really haven't made up your mind whether you want to trust Jesus Christ or not. And when you hear believers in Jesus talk about the second coming, you're like, really? You guys believe in that? You believe in this end time, Jesus is going to come, and you, you, you seem to think that that's, uh, you know, that it's not very compelling to you. And particularly when you understand why Jesus is coming back, Jesus Christ, one of the purposes for him to come back is to provide judgment and justice for all the wrong that is done as he is in the process of redeeming the world. And you don't like a God like that. You don't want a Jesus who does that. I would say in many of my conversations with people who are skeptical of Christianity, some would not believe in God at all, but they would say if if there is a God, he's a God of love who's not going to bring judgment in his second coming like you believe. Come on, it's archaic. But the reality is If God isn't a God who's going to come and deal with the brokenness and injustice and the heinous things that have happened in this world and not hold people accountable, that's not a God you want to believe in. Miroslav Volf is a theologian. He's from Croatia. He writes about these kinds of things. And he's from Croatia, which is uh, part of a country that's been divided up in all kinds of ways over the last 500 years. In his country, ethnic violence and ethnic cleansings and religious cleansings have taken place for the last 500 years. Muslims against Christians, Christians against Muslims. And here is how he responds to those who say, well, God is a God of love. He's not going to... He's not going to... He's not going to come back and, and, and bring justice to the world. I mean, he's a God of love. And this is what he says about that. He said, my thesis, which he goes on to say, will be very unpopular with many Christians, especially those in the West. That's us. I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. He's kind of describing his own country of Croatia. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And the thesis that we try to tell these these victims, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. In other words, since God isn't going to deal with this, you shouldn't deal with it. He goes on, really critiques. He says, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. And that's why Believing in the second coming of Christ is absolutely critical to your own walk with Jesus and also is the basis for why you can forgive those who hurt you because you have a God who is going to deal with it. 
Now, there's more problems with, Matthew, with Mark 13. And, and one of the problems is, is it's a summary. Jesus is giving a summary. Mark's recording it. Of what Jesus is saying about future events. But it's not comprehensive. And so one of the problems I think expositors have when they deal with Mark 13 is try to jam in every other text in the Bible about the future events and jam it onto Mark 13, which I think confuses the issue. The other difficult thing about this is that Jesus starts with talking about what's going to happen in the next 40 years. In other words, what's going to happen from the time he predicted this, which was right before his death, till about 70 AD, so about 40 years later. And then he begins to talk about the future, the farer future, and for us that's been, you know, 2,000 years of these events surrounding his second coming. And it's difficult to tell what Jesus is doing with this. Is he talking about the, the destruction of the temple? Is he talking about the far, the near of the far prophecies? And I think one of the things I think we'll have to understand is that in a very real way, what Jesus predicts in the next 40 years, the destruction of the temple, is often repeated at the end of the second coming. So what he prophesies will happen in the next four decades is in some sense will be repeated. A little study you could do this afternoon. If you get confused, you can call Jim Newman and he will help you. Jim Newman gave me a little chart that he had worked on. He gave me another chart from someone else, another scholar. What's very fascinating is that many of the predictions that Jesus makes about the different things that are happening, the things that will happen with the disciples and with the world in the run-up to the destruction of the temple actually begin to happen almost the next day, sort of, in the death of Jesus. Over and over again, you'll see, like the sun is going to be darkened in the future. Well, the sun is darkened when Jesus dies. The disciples are going to be handed over. Jesus was handed over. The disciples are going to have to be tried in in councils. Jesus was tried before the council. And on and on it goes. In fact, Jesus says, the temple is going to be destroyed. Well, what happens when Jesus uh, is dying, the temple is in some sense figuratively destroyed with the rending of the veil. So there's a very sense that the prophecies that Jesus have are foreshadowing, yes, what's going to happen in the near future, but they correspond and connect to what's going to happen in the future. And then, of course, some of you will spend all afternoon diagramming Mark 13 and every other prophetic scripture from Daniel to Ezekiel to the prophets to Revelation, First and Second Thessalonians, you will get all the details, and you'll send me a chart by tomorrow morning. You have to remember about this text. Yes, it's giving details, but it's summarizing. I don't think Jesus or Mark intended for us, oh, that this is the comprehensive, you know, list of everything that's going to happen between Jesus' death and his second coming. It's a summary. But we also have to realize that in this summary... There are 19 imperatives. In other words, as Jesus is describing the future, his concern is not that you get all the details and you organize yourself and you've got the right eschatology for the future. 19 times Jesus is going to say, in light of these realities of my return and in light of these predictions, you need to respond to them 
consistent with how you ought to respond to them. And 19 times Jesus gives instruction, guidance, commands that are really the focus, I think, of what Mark 13 is all about. Now, after I've gone through all of that, let's bow for the benediction, and you can study this this afternoon. No, no, I, I have some things to explain. I want to help us make three connections with this text. And the first connection is Jesus describes what's going to happen to the temple and to his followers in the run-up to the destruction of that temple. Remember, as we just had this text read, the disciples are, 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 are coming out of the temple with Jesus, and the disciples look at the temple. This was the temple that King Herod built, and they marvel at the architectural beauty of this temple in first century Palestine. It truly was amazing. Some commentators have even said that, that Herod's temple and the comp complex of buildings and the simply large area uh, that the, the temple complex uh, uh, you know, took up is that Jerusalem was actually a temple with a small city surrounding it because the temple was that large and that impressive. The architecture was incredible. And the disciples are marveling at this in the first uh, two verses of Mark 13. And Jesus says, every single stone is, not gonna be, is gonna be torn down. The whole thing is coming down. And the disciples are, are kind of interested in this doomsday talk. And they ask him in verse three and four, they ask Jesus privately, when will the destruction of this temple occur? And what are the signs that this is about to happen? And so Jesus begins to describe what will happen in the near future. It's like 40 years worth of prophecy, so to speak. What's going to happen to the temple? What's going to happen to the disciples? And I just want to briefly go over that. Verse 6. Many will come in my name and declare that they are the true messiahs. This is what is going to happen. There's going to be false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs. Verse 7. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Violence is gonna be part of the experience. Verse eight, nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then moving on into verse eight, there's gonna be earthquakes. There's gonna be famines. And these are but the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, birth pangs signify that this kingdom that the son, Jesus, has come to undertake, to restore the world under his authority, is beginning. The birth pangs are beginning. It's not here yet, but it begins. And this is what is going to mark the, the world and the experience of the disciples as they await the destruction of the temple, which will happen in about 40 years. Now Jesus begins to describe what's going to happen to the followers of Jesus in the run-up to the destruction of the temple. Verse 9, the, the, the followers of Jesus are going to be delivered over to councils. They're going to be beaten in synagogues. They're going to have to stand trial before kings and governors. Verse 12, the followers of Jesus are going to be hated, even by their own families, for the sake of Jesus. None of this is a pretty picture. Yet... For the readers of Mark's gospel, 
who are themselves under persecution, they are probably being persecuted by Nero in 64, 65, 66. Mark is writing his book to them. And, 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 and this probably provided the, the believers in Rome where Mark is writing to uh, his readers there a sense of solidarity, a sense of <coughs> the persecution we're facing in Rome is the persecution that believers all over will experience particularly those believers in the run-up to the destruction of the temple. Finally, verse 14 talks about when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There's a sense in which between Jesus' words and the destruction of the temple, uh, There's going to be this abomination of desolation. The temple itself will be desecrated, and it was by the Romans, uh, where they they built an altar on top of the actual altar. There was also a pretender high priest that Rome put in charge who also defiled that area. And of course, when you read the book of Daniel and his prophecies about the abomination of desolations, there's been a number of abomination of desolations. Antiochus Epiphanes, back in 167 BC or so, uh, you know, actually built an altar, uh, sort of to worship him, and then put a, a pig on the altar. You see something else similar to that maybe happened in 40 AD, where, 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 where a, a, an idol to Zeus was put in the temple courtyard. And Jesus is saying, if you follower of Jesus and you see this begin to happen, you need to get out of Jerusalem. You need to flee to the mountains. And actually that did happen where many Jews did flee to, and into Pella right after, right around 70 AD to escape the incoming Roman legions who came to destroy uh, the, the temple, but also to destroy uh, Jerusalem as they attempted to put down a rebellion So that's the first connection. Jesus is describing what will happen to the temple, to his followers, and the run-up and the destruction of the temple. But there's a second connection we need to make, and that is Jesus describes his second coming as the king who will restore the world. Take a look at verse 24. I think that Jesus is switching from the run-up to the destruction of the temple, and he's looking further. He's looking past 70 A.D., This afternoon, if you want to read, you will find many commentators who won't agree with me. They're wrong. No, I love them. Some people won't see this happening until verse 32. That's fine. I don't think this really changes too much of, of what Mark is attempting to do here. But in verse 24, it says, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. What I believe that Jesus is describing here in verses 24 to 27 is the second coming. He's looking beyond the destruction of the temple to when Jesus will return. The Son, as Mark has been describing to us, the co-regent ruler with God the Father who is going to restore the rule of God on this planet. 
And he comes in power, the Shekinah glory of God coming in the Shekinah cloud, the glory of God, great power, great glory, gathering believers together, his people who will then enter into the consummated kingdom that he is now uh, establishing as he comes back to set things right in the world. This is incredible. This is foundational to your faith. It is our great hope. This is what Mark has been driving at from the very beginning of his book. And this is what should define our expectation and our hope. It is the thing that we ought to long for, the thing that we would look forward to, the thing that we would live in light of. So this incredible picture that Jesus is going to come back and right every wrong and restore this planet under the rightful rule and reign of himself, God the Son, the co-regent with God the Father. Now, let me just remind you of what I said a few minutes earlier. The way this text works and this summary that Jesus is giving It appears that what happens in Jesus' death to some of the celestial signs and to the disciples and to Jesus map onto each other. One commentator put it like this, the conditions associated with the local crisis of Jerusalem's fall, the destruction of the temple, foreshadow those connected with the worldwide crisis at the end of the world. Thus, Jesus' words, relevant to his first disciples, are relevant to all of the followers of Jesus, no matter what age they happen to live in. So what we see here in this summary, focusing on the coming of Christ, started with the destruction of the temple. Jesus is trying to prepare us, in summary, with what is going to happen, but in order to prepare us to live very differently than we would absent an understanding of the second coming of Christ. That's the second connection. Jesus describes his second coming as the king will restore the world. So lastly, I want to make the third connection, and that is we must learn to follow the guidance that Jesus has given us as we await his second coming. We need to follow his guidance. We need to follow those 19 imperatives throughout this text. Let me mention a couple of things for you. I don't think you should try to work on all of these things. I think you should pick one and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to apply one of these imperatives that we see in the text here to help you live differently in light of the future that Jesus has outlined for us. The first is this. Number one, this might be for some of you, we must be prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel in Jesus. It's very clear. You come to Jesus Christ, and we can, we can make a mistake like this. We, we talk about he, that Jesus will give you joy. Your sins will be forgiven. Uh, life will, 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 is abundant with Jesus. That's all true. But when you follow Jesus, you will invite suffering in a broken world. Woo! And we, of all people compared to many other believers around the world, we've had it pretty easy in this country. 
There are lots of countries, lots of places where believers would be under siege just coming to church. That would, that would jeopardize their work. It would jeopardize their social standing. It might even jeopardize their freedom simply to go to church. Your biggest hassle with coming to church is trying to get to church at 9 o'clock. It's a joke. Finding a pew. Ticked off that there's no bagels today. You know, I mean, that's, you know. And I think one of the reasons we're, we're not prepared for suffering is because we haven't lived in a place where suffering for the cause of Christ has been particularly significant, although that's not true for everyone in this room. I have, over the last 10 years, I've counseled at least three individuals because of their simple walking with faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that they did anything obnoxious. It's not that they were, you know, giving everybody, a, you know, a, a Bible at work, okay, you know. It wasn't they were preaching during lunch hour of work. Simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ, their career was damaged, curtailed. And it, some cases, essentially, they were fired. I think we would all do well to prepare ourselves with what could happen if we follow Jesus Christ more forcefully. And I think the other reason that some of us don't get more pushback from the culture is nobody really knows that we're following Jesus Christ. If I went to your workplace tomorrow and surveyed the people you, you work closely with, and I told them, oh yeah, I'm just asking about, you know, there's a person who goes to our church and he's a, he or she is a follower of Jesus Christ, would your coworkers be shocked at that? Oh, really? They follow Jesus? Would they know? If I went to your school when school starts back up in September and I asked your classmates, about you at the lunchroom, the people you hang out with, and said, hey, uh, did you know this person's a follower of Jesus? Would that surprise them or shock them? I think sometimes we're not prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel because we've had it pretty easy, but sometimes we don't even suffer in even the little ways because we just have not been upfront about who we actually are following. And again, I don't think the persecution or pushback you get will be big, you know, necessarily, certainly not in our context, but if you don't put yourself out there as a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're really not prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel, which is what Jesus says you need to be prepared to do. I, I went, Denise and I went overseas, uh, 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 you know, the last two weeks. I was at a dinner with people I didn't know. I, this is a couple that was from Scotland, and we were in Scotland. We were talking to them, and um, I made the mistake. It wasn't a mistake, but I, I told the, the couple that I was a pastor, and I could just feel the air out of the dinner go down. Uh, and the wife looked at me and said, oh, really? What kind of a church do you go to? And so I start to talk about the church, and I start to share, I mean, I basically, I share the gospel, and, you know, I, I basically, and I'm sorry, I threw you all under the bus, which I normally do, you know, I, I just said, yeah, it's a, you know, what was your church like? Oh, was about 500 people. She says, well, what are the people like in your church? I don't know, they're all sinners. 
We have a confession of sin every week. We don't follow Jesus real well. We're trying by the grace of God. And I got a chance to talk to her about grace, which was news to her, in fact. So the hostility that she had initially, oh, great church. She realized that it's by grace. And, uh, and, she, and she, she didn't commit to this, but she says, we're planning to go to the United States. We'd like to go to the East Coast. And if we do go to the East Coast, I think I'd like to come to your church. To which I then said, well, you'll, you'll fit right in. <laughs> Some of us are not prepared to receive the kind of pushback because we're really not on record with the people in our neighborhood, the people at our school, the people at our work, the people who are just not. Jesus is trying to prepare his followers. If you really are on record in following me, you're going to get pushback. We need to be prepared for that. This is another important thing we need to remember is that we must be prepared at any moment for the coming of Christ. Fascinating verse in verse 32 says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. Jesus himself doesn't even know at this time as he's talking to his disciples when he will return, but only the father. And then Jesus goes on to say, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. He goes on to say, it's like a man on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. If the king is coming back, and Jesus is the king, that son, as Mark has been describing to us, and he is going to come and make things right, and he, when he's talking to his disciples, doesn't even know the time of when he's coming, well, certainly we don't know the time of when it happens either. And I would say to each of us, when Jesus returns, when you don't know, do you want to have him come back and you're asleep at the switch? Or do you want him to come back and you are engaged at helping his kingdom and his reputation go forth? Something to think about. Are you living your life in light of that future event? Are you constructing the hours of your day and the things that you are focused on to be expectant, to desire, to want Jesus to come back? You know, you can tell that we live in, a, in, in, you know, here in Princeton. I mean, listen, the, 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 Princeton's broken, don't get me wrong. But if you're going to have to suffer in the world, I, I'd rather suffer here than many other places. I think about this all the time. The only other place I'd rather go is Troxelvad, Switzerland. You can go back to my ancestral castle and claim it. It's pretty beautiful. But you can tell we don't long for the second coming because we don't see the brokenness of the world as much as other places. But actually, how selfish can we be when we have people all over the world in massive, horrific suffering, believers all over the world in massive persecution where their lives are actually in danger, and we merely go on and say, boy, I hope the second coming doesn't happen tonight. It shows that we are not 
fully understanding what the second coming means. We don't understand it in relationship to ourselves or with others who are suffering. And we are just not orienting our lives around this biblical doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Verse 10 of Mark 13. It mentions in the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Jesus was reminding his followers that when things are bad around you, when you're under pushback from the surrounding culture, even from your own family, Jesus mentions, when you're experiencing and living through earthquakes and living through wars and rumors of wars and all the other things that happen to this world, we have to keep our eye on the ball and preach the gospel to those around us because that's the only hope. I think all of us could ask ourselves, maybe this is the thing you need to work on, is am I devoting enough intentionality about trying to get the word out about what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection can mean for someone else? Am I focused on sharing that message? Lastly, there's so many more we could bring up, but I want to do talk about the issue of forgiveness. If we really believe that Jesus is coming back and he's going to right every wrong, because we know that Jesus is going to bring justice, we ought to be better at forgiving the people who have hurt us. And part of what the second coming provides for us is a theological context where we can forgive knowing that God will make sure that all justice and all appropriate punishments for sin, he will do it so I don't have to take that on myself. I can forgive freely and let God take care of what he does. There's lots of things to think about. I would encourage you to pick one of these items and ask the Spirit of God to help you work on that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, forgive us for not longing and yearning for your return. Help us to see that you're coming back. Help us to know that you're coming back. Help us to orient our lives around that reality. For those of us who need to prepare ourselves to suffer a little bit more for the sake of the gospel, give us courage to think about that. That we would be on record for Jesus in an appropriate way and be willing to take the pushback. Lord, help us to be prepared at any moment for your return. That we would be watchful, that we would be alert that we would be busy about seeing your kingdom extended and deepened when you return. I pray that you would help us to feel faithful in sharing the gospel. And I pray that in the light of your return, that we of all people would be people who can forgive, knowing that this Jesus is coming again to bring justice to the world. And because he's going to do that, and he's going to do it a lot better than we can, and he's doing exactly what can be done, it frees us up to forgive those who have hurt us. I do pray for each of us, any of us who are anxious because they see world events, that looking and thinking about Jesus from Mark 13 will encourage them. God is going to bring, through Jesus, is going to bring the world and his kingdom back together under his authority. And we can be confident and hopeful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.